Uh, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 66, uh, verse 2, My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts and who tremble at my word. Question, who here is ready to tremble? I saw someone to say that, are you ready to tremble? <laughs> Some of you know what that's about, maybe. And who here has a heart that is contrite, that is humble and repentant? Let's tremble, church. Romans 8. And we know, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. And part of becoming like his son is for God to be able to work in us through those hard and difficult times. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote these challenging, powerful, familiar, and insightful words as he opens up his letter. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of various kinds, because you know, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let the perseverance finish the work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then Peter, writing to a a bunch of Jesus followers who were, who were suffering and, and had lost a lot at the hands of the Roman Empire. I mean, these people were, were scattered and, and forced to flee their homes. Imagine that happening to you. And many were beaten. They had their property confiscated. Many had lost loved ones. And so Peter first reminds them of some good stuff about God's mercy and about this living hope that they have. And about this inheritance that can never spoil or fade, that is kept in heaven for them, and that is shielded by the power of God. And then he says this, and all of this, that good stuff, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Again, people being scattered and persecuted. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father God, we humbly, I humbly come into your presence. You made heaven and earth with your hands and everything in them. That means everyone in this room belongs to you. Our thoughts belong to you. Our lives belong to you. Our actions belong to you. Our attitudes belong to you. This time right now belongs to you. And God, I, I pray that you would just be with us. I pray that you'd be with me. Lord, that as we talk about something so very important today, Lord, God, that our, our eyes will be open, our ears will be open, our hearts will be open. And, and God, I, I just pray that you would just help me to say what you want me to say in the way that you want to say it. 
And so we leave here knowing that you're alive and you're real and you're good and faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, welcome to week six of our series, Overcome the Challenges that We Face. And in this series, we've talked about a lot of practical stuff, a, a lot of powerful, a lot of needed stuff like reversing anxiety, moving beyond insecurity, getting over our hurt, making fear our friend, and overcoming discouragement by looking up, looking back, looking out, looking beyond, looking around, looking ahead, and looking in. And this morning, we're going to talk about another significant and often devastating challenge that we all will face as we run the race to live the life we were created to live. Overcoming loss in a conversation I'm calling a grace disguised. And here's how I want to attack this text. Loss, here's the deal. Loss, a story, and loss, some lessons. And let me say this as we begin. I recognize as with fear, insecurity, hurt, and anxiety, and discouragement, that loss is like, it's a big deal. It's raw and it's real. And that there's no way we can accomplish everything we need to accomplish in just one conversation on a, a Sunday morning. I recognize the limitations, but with that being said, I'm still convinced of the power of the living Word of God, and I'm still convinced of the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I still believe that something very significant and meaningful can happen in the lives of some people in this room, including myself, if our eyes are open and our ears are open. Get it? Get it? Good. Loss, here's the deal. It's inevitable. Right, we're all going to experience it. Okay, raise your hands if you have never experienced loss at any time in your life. Okay? Then you're not alone, right? Look three people in the eye and just say, you're not alone. Yeah, I know you lost and you're losing now, but you're not alone. You're not alone. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You see, loss, it's just a part of life. You've either had it or having it, or you're going to have it. Remember, Grove, like it or not, that's just the way it works. It's just part of our story in this falling world. Yes, sooner or later, all people suffer loss. In little doses or big doses, suddenly or over time, privately or in public, you see, loss is as much a part of life as birth. Surely as you were born into this world, you will suffer loss before you leave it. Aren't you encouraged? <laughs> you know, this week I spent some time thinking about the people we find in the Bible and reflecting on the ways in which they suffer loss. And as I did that, it was like, whoa, it's like everybody suffered loss from Genesis to Revelation right? Adam and Eve, they, they lost their son Abel. They lost life in the garden. They lost intimacy with God. Noah lost the, the world he knew and grew up in. Abraham lost his son Ishmael. Lot lost his wife when she turned back. Esau lost his birthright. Jacob lost his son Joseph. Joseph lost his colorful coat, his family, his freedom. And for many years, Joseph lost his dream. Israel lost her freedom for generations as they were slaves in Egypt. Moses lost growing up with his birth family. He lost his position and he lost himself in the desert for 40 years. Naomi lost her husband and her two sons. Daniel lost his homeland, becoming an exile in Babylon. Esther lost her mom and dad and became an orphan. John the Baptist lost his freedom and eventually 
He lost his head when he was executed. Uh, Paul lost his elite peer group among the Pharisees when he decided to follow Christ. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see powerful images of people who lost at the hands of such things as, as famine and wars and, and evil governments and corrupt religion. I could keep going, but I think you get my point. <laughs> it's inevitable. A loss is no respecter of persons. I mean, even in this room. I mean, take a minute. Just look around this room. Do a 360, if you can, or a 90. <laughs> See, in this room, there are people who have lost a loved one. They lost a mom, a dad, a wife, a husband, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a grandparent, a dear friend. There's people in this room that have lost a marriage, lost a relationship, lost a friendship, a job, a promotion. There are people in this room that, that have lost part of their physical health. Some have lost their innocence because somebody stole it when they were young. Some have lost their childhood because they were raised in an abusive home. Some have lost a hope, a dream. They've lost a belief that things really could get better, that re they really could become someone better. Here's the deal about loss. It's inevitable in this falling world full of falling and broken people. That's why Paul writes in Romans 8 that the, all of creation groans and longs for the day when everything will be as it should be. Loss is also varied. James says, consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you, whenever, again, it's inevitable, right? Uh, you face trials of various kinds. Loss is varied. In his book, A Disguised Grace, Jerry sits there writes, loss is loss. Whatever the circumstances, all losses are bad, only in different ways. No two losses are ever the same. Each loss stands on its own and inflicts a unique kind of pain. What makes each loss so catastrophic is its devastating, cumulative, and reversible nature. Losses is lost. Therefore, you and I must fight the temptation to compare our loss to others as this, and to see whose loss is worse. And whenever I think about comparing losses and our tendency to do that, my mind goes back to a scene from the movie Jaws that came out in 1975. In this scene, the three main characters, are, they're downstairs in the mess hall, uh, hunting that deadly and elusive great white. At, and, and you have Quentin Hooper, as they sit at the table, they begin to compare all the scars that they received over the years from, from sharks and other underwater creatures, as if to say, here's a little picture of them, you know, as if to say, my scar's bigger than your scars, my scar's bigger than yours, right? Hey, my loss is bigger than your loss. I mean, you just lost a job, a promotion. My loved one died. What I'm trying to say, all loss is bad. All loss is painful. Whether it's loss of a job, a loved one, a relationship, they're just bad and devastating in different ways. As Jerry's sister says, each loss stands on its own and inflicts a unique kind of pain. What makes each loss so catastrophic is its devastating, cumulative, and irreversible nature. Loss is loss, loss is difficult, and all loss hurts. Amen? I was reading this week about a Ernest Hemingway, he was having lunch with a bunch of other authors, and they, they made a bet with him to see if he could write a, a short story using just six words, and he grabbed a napkin from the table, and he wrote these words, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. 
There certainly is a story within those six words, and some in here could write their own story. The cancer isn't responding to treatment. I'm going through with the divorce. Your position is no longer needed. There has been a terrible accident. I do not love you anymore. Your mom fell down the stairs. You will never have any children. I can't be around you anymore. Mom, dad, I was sexually abused. It's the bank. They are foreclosing. Sad stories. Difficult stories. Loss is loss. Loss is difficult. And all loss hurts. And all loss should be mourned. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And and I think mourning or grief is something that, that we tend to struggle with as Jesus followers. It's like we're not, we're not sure what to do with it. Like we would rather avoid it, deny it, numb it, or cover it up. And if we must go through it, let's get in and get out as fast as we possibly can. In his book, Beauty Will Save the World, Brian Zahn writes about the struggle we have to embrace mourning. He says, we have an immature obsession with being happy all the time. It's in our culture. It seeps into our churches. And it's not healthy. I think sometimes we're trying to replace a symbol of the cross with a smiley face. Serious Christianity has given way to inspirational Christianity, which has turned into insipid Christianity, have replaced a serious theology of the cross with a pop psychology of happiness. Have we traded something sublime and serious, majestic and mysterious for something silly prosaic and shallow, a juvenile obsession with cheap happiness? I don't think I'm overstating the problem because we're uncomfortable with sorrow. We passively enforce a kind of mandated happiness in our churches. Instead of weeping with those who weep, we want everybody to just cheer up. And we want them to cheer up for our sake because we're so terribly uncomfortable with their sorrow. What we should do instead is join them in their sorrow and assist them in the work of grief. When human beings suffer tragedy and profound loss, there is a certain amount of grieving that is required. Question is, can we create churches that understand that mourning is not a sign of weakness, but a spiritual work to be attended to, a spiritual work that Jesus says leads to blessedness, a comfort from outside of ourselves? What I'm trying to say, and what he said so well, is that it's okay to mourn our loss. It's natural to mourn loss. In fact, it is necessary to mourn and grieve loss. Get it? I mean, think about it. When Jesus wore flesh outside the tomb of Lazarus, what did he do? He, what? he wept. In fact, we're actually commanded to mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Next, about loss, it changes our lives forever. In his book, A Disguised Grace, Jerry Sitzer writes this. Catastrophic loss wrecked Wreaks destruction like a massive flood. is unrelenting, unforgiving, and uncontrollable. Brutally erosive the body, mind, and spirit. Someone wrote on my Facebook wall this week, loss just cuts you all the way through. Sister continues, sometimes loss does its damage instantly. As if it were a flood resulting from a broken dam that releases a great torrent of water sweeping away everything in its path. Sometimes loss does its damage gradually, as if it were a flood resulting from unceasing rain that causes rivers and lakes to swell until they spill over their banks, engulfing, saturating, and destroying whatever the water touches. 
In either case, catastrophic loss leaves the landscape of one's lives forever changed. Nothing is ever the same again. And he's right. Nothing is ever the same again. And it can't be, right? Because something is missing. Something is lost and it's no longer there. And understand, Adam's lost, Jacob's lost, Joseph, Naomi's, Moses, all their losses, it changed their lives. Because loss by its very nature and definition always leaves our lives changed forever. Loss, here's the deal. It's inevitable. It's very. It should be mourned. And it changes our lives forever. Loss, a story. Now, like everyone in this room, I've experienced loss many, many times over the years. And and my losses, though varied, have never been easy, never been fun. Like there never was a loss that I would have chosen, but yet still they came. Again, many times, like you, I, I have had unwanted and sometimes unexpected loss sweep over my life like a catastrophic flood. But of all the losses I've ever experienced in life, there is one that 22 years later still stands as my Mount Everest of loss. When on July 28, 1996, my first wife lost her 17-month fight with cancer. Now, I've never in a message shared much detail about this loss, just an occasional mention that it happened. Others said, as I've shared more. And I struggled this week and felt led this morning to share some of that story. And I called my daughter Chelsea up this morning and I said, hey, first of all, I need you to pray, but it's not, nothing's wrong. You know, but I'm going to share some of our story and I want you to pray because I want this to be about God and I want it to help people and I don't want it to be about me. And she prayed and and I said, man, I wish you lived in Virginia. <laughs> I love that girl. I love that girl. Uh, but this is about, I, I want to demonstrate, and I want you to know that God is good all the time, even when things in our life are not good. And, and, and I don't merely want to share my story of loss. I, I want to share with you some powerful lessons, some anchor points that God gave me to help me get through. Anchor points that still to this day help me get through things whenever I remember to do that. You see, this loss was and is still one of the defining moments of my life in ministry for that matter. You know, as a pastor, oftentimes you're called to come along somebody in their loss. I'll never forget the first time that happened. I got a call from Chris Compton. I was in, you know, new in ministry, and her husband of 50 years was in ICU, and he was maybe dying. And I'm like, oh, man. I go to my bookshelf. It's still back there. I haven't opened it since. Crisis counseling, right? Okay, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I say? And then I make the 50-minute drive over to the hospital, and I dove into the waters of coming along someone in their loss. However, after going through my loss, I, I don't need a book anymore. <laughs> Listen, because once you have swum, swam the waters of loss, you just, you just get it, right? You understand what it's like to lose something. Okay, so here's my story. I, I first met Judy in the fall of 1979. I was 19. I was attending Navy Nuclear Power School in Orlando, Florida. 
And she was a senior at Central Florida Bible College. I was not a believer at the time, and I started attending church with her. And for the first time in my life, I began to seek God, and I hung out with a bunch of guys in the dorms and studied the Bible with them. And it was during that time that I realized I was lost and that I, that I needed a Savior. And since I, I was new to the church, I simply responded to the gospel in the way I saw everyone in the book of Acts responding. And on December the 30th, 1979, I walked forward on a Sunday night at First Christian Church in Orlando. I repented of my sins, seeking Jesus to be the Lord of my life, and I was baptized for remission of my sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. June and I were married on August the 9th, 1980, after I finished my training in upstate New York to learn how to operate a nuclear reactor. And we were, after we were married, we moved to Charleston, South Carolina, and I joined the Navy on board the USS Woodrow Wilson, a missile sub. We spent seven plus years in the Navy in Charleston, Newport News, and in Virginia. We had two kids during that time, Chelsea born in, on March 20th, 1984, and John, August 22nd, 1986. We left the Navy in the fall of 1987 because God called me to go into ministry, and I attended Florida Christian College. In the fall of 1989, Judy was having some back pain, thought it was a kidney infection. I wanted to have it checked out at her doctor. I'm in, in, the, I'm in our, our college apartment studying, and I get a phone call. She says, there's a large mass and by my kidney. I need you now. I freaked out. And before I make the drive over there, I went to the office of one of my professors. I got into that room. I can still see Professor Glenborn sitting there. I fell on my knees at his feet, and I wept uncontrollably. He had no idea what was going on. Hey, Steve, maybe we can work out that term paper thing. <laughs> you know, he just said, it's going to be all right. Finally, when I got my strength, I said, hey, you know what? I, I got to go over to the doctor's office to be with Judy. I, I, I'm, I need to be strong, but I'm not feeling strong. Would you pray for me? He prayed. God answered. God is good. We met with a kidney surgeon. He said, you have three to five years to live. You need surgery now. A week later, we had surgery. And after the surgery, our head's still spinning from the past two weeks. Doctor said, great news. It's benign. You're good to go. And good to go, we went back to our life. I graduated in June 1992. Went to a church in Tampa. Judy continued to travel to Kissimmee. Um, she taught at a Christian preschool. And, and uh, our kids got to go free. And we got health insurance, right? <laughs> and, uh, and here's a picture of Judy with her four-year-old class. Um, you know, like 24 year olds for like all day, I could take like two minutes. Um, and uh, things were good. I mean, we never gave much thought to what happened back in 1989. Then in the middle of 94, she started having back pain. I thought we thought it was a commute. She went to a chiropractor, the pain went away until it didn't go away. Made a point with an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, thought she had some disc issue going on. Um, but such was not the case. The cancer came back, and a large tumor had made its home where her kidney used to be. Next week, we met with the surgeon, Dr. Norman. He was pretty confident he could take care of this, so though we were a little bit uneasy, we felt okay. Now, Judy had a very rare cancer called a pheochromocytoma. You know, it, my spell check did not recognize it, all right? And, and uh, one of the side effects is it, it, it releases hormones into your body that makes your blood pressure go up. Well, after... Our appointment with Dr. Norman, we waited for test results to come in, but I had to rush her to the ER because her blood pressure was 190 over 110. Uh, we were met by a couple interns in the ER, escorted to a room immediately, put on a morphine pump, and though I enjoyed the special treatment, <laughs> you know, no ER wait, an escort to a room, 
I knew something wasn't good. About midnight, Dr. Norman came into the room. He was, a, he was the lead trauma surgeon for Tampa General. He came into the room. I can still see him there sitting on the couch, all worn out, a troubled look on his face, and he could not say a word. And finally, we said, what's up, Dr. Norman? And he told us with his head lowered, I know I told you I could operate, but I cannot operate on her because the cancer is everywhere and she would bleed out on the table. However, we do need to remove a piece of the tumor in her spine because me and the orthopedic surgeon have no idea in the world how she is actually walking. We did. God, right? And he felt terrible. And Judy just said, hey, it's okay. It's going to be all right. It's not your fault. It's okay. Chelsea and John came over to see her that night. And a lady named Lisette spent the night with her. And she told me that a nurse that night asked her in the hallway, hey, does this lady in that room know how sick she is? And Lisette said, yeah, she does. Then how can she be so happy and content? And Lisette said, well, she's a Christian. And the nurse, obviously not one, said, wow, does it make that much of a difference? That night I drove home with John and Chelsea in the Crosstown Expressway in Tampa. I told them mom had cancer, would be starting chemo. John, who's always thinking ahead, said, what if it does not work? And I said, I was by the main buildings in Tampa. I said, well, then mom's going to go home to be with Jesus. And the three of us cried together. And as we entered this unwanted journey, Judy and I made a decision about how we responded, how we, we made a decision that the way we responded to this situation would either make or break our kids' faith. And we said, you know what? We're determining that the situation, regardless of outcome, at the other side, that John and Chelsea's faith would be stronger and that they would know that God is good no matter what. And so our cancer journey began, and for the next 17 months, there were rounds of chemo and radiation, doctor appointments, countless tests and scans, hair loss, weight loss, sickness, blood transfusions, a few hospital stays, good days, tough days, days of laughing, days of weeping, a month spent crossing the border into Tijuana, and another in upstate North Carolina trying alternative treatments. Then late in 1996, June, during VBS at church, we got our latest scan results, and as we read them, we both knew what was coming, we knew time was short, and we both wept. We took a mini vacation to Lido Beach in Sarasota, Florida. We had a great time laying on the beach, enjoying creation in each other. One night, we went to a seafood restaurant called The Sandbar, eating shrimp. I love shrimp. You know me, I, I pound shrimp. I'm, I'm known for making sure I get every, even out of the tails, I'll get you know, the meat. And John said at the dinner table, he said, hey, dad, do you want to dig the stuff out of my tail? <laughs> and we laughed so hard, we cried. We went outside and walked. There was a lady walking around, and we said, hey, would you mind taking our picture? And she did, and it was the last picture that we ever took together. Uh, four weeks later, on July 17th, Judy had to be rushed to the hospital. The cancer had apparently uh, destroyed her stomach, her stomach ruptured, and five liters of bile just went everywhere. She had emergency surgery, only 10% chance of surviving it. I was not ready at that moment, and people prayed, like 30 or 40 of us in the waiting room, and God answered our prayers, and she survived the surgery. So unsure if she'd ever wake up, but she was still alive. And to this day, I remember sitting out in the hallway on the freshly waxed floor of, uh, outside ICU with John and Chelsea waiting to for them to go see their mom. And I said, mom, she's going to be hooked up all kinds of tubes and wires and she may not wake up, but her spirit is still in her 
inside of her, and therefore she will be able to hear us. And, and I said to them, I said, you know what? You know, we never held anything back from you. And I know some people on the sidelines thought we were wrong to do that. And John said, Dad, I'm glad you did because if you did not tell us how sick mom was, then I would not know to pray for her. Then I would have got mad at her at times she couldn't play with me. And if she did have to go and be with Jesus, I would not be ready. He was nine. We went to the IC room and the three of us grabbed the hold of, of Judy's hands and we prayed. And I heard John and Chelsea, 12 and nine, pray, God, we love you. Mom, we love you. And if you have to go home to be with Jesus, that's okay because dad is with us and God will take care of us. And Judy woke up and we had some good days together. We laughed, we visited, it was good. And we both seized and celebrated the opportunity that was given. In fact, on that Sunday, July 21st, I preached a sermon in church about how when God gives you a victory, when he allows you to stand on the mountaintop, celebrate the mountaintop, but don't worry about it if, if there's another valley coming up. Just celebrate the now. Amen? However, on Thursday, uh, July 25th, it was apparent to me that some of you have been there, you, you know things are bad, right? And I wrote out a prayer to God in a loose leaf paper. I said, God, I want you to heal Judy by Sunday. I, I want her to be walking out the door, and I want everybody to marvel at your power, but if she's going to continue to suffer, I want you to take her home this Sunday. On Sunday, I won, and I, I preached a sermon and came over to church, spent the day with Judy at 11.30 p.m. She went into cardiac arrest. Uh, Code Blue was called everywhere. A bunch of doctors and nurses came in. When they recognized I was in the room, they said I needed to leave. I said, I do not want extraordinary measures. They said, are you sure? I said, give me a minute. Doctor came out in the hallway. I said, hey, man, I know this is serious. But I'm a Christian. And if God wants my wife to breathe, she'll breathe. And I prayed, Doc, just three days ago, that if she was to continue to suffer, that God should take her home on Sunday. So how could I dishonor? I said, there's only 15 minutes left to Sunday. How can I dishonor God and my wife by hooking her up to a machine? So they all left. And I held her hand, stroked her hair, singing, God is good. And at 11.59 p.m., God gave me the entire day, what a great God he is, to monitor the flatline and Judy was home. The weeks that followed were full of many things, planning or celebration of life, going on a 5,000-mile road trip, and trying to figure out what was next for me. On September the 1st, 1996, I wrote in my journal, <laughs> it's kind of oil-stained. It's about 9 p.m. I feel so sad. I miss Judy. I feel so desperate trying to find a piece of her, something she wrote down, anything. I've been looking in the closet, but no matter what I find, it's not enough. It will never be enough. At times I feel strong, and other times I feel like I'm about to fall apart. Lately, the ways of loss have come more frequently, and I've been much stronger. It seems like a black hole that is trying to suck me in. This loss, I've determined, will transform me. I still find it hard to believe this is real. Five weeks ago, Judy died. It almost seems like a lifetime. Not only have I lost Judy, but I've lost a piece of myself, a large piece of what defined who I am. I don't know what to write. It helps to write, right? But right now, I'm just, I, I don't know. Judy is gone. I'll never... I have to live the rest of my life without her, and that's the cold, hard reality of things. She's gone, and I'm alone, and it really hurts. Later that night, it's almost 9.50 p.m., and I'm desperately trying to find something that has Judy's touch on it. I've looked through boxes and under the bed. I'm going nuts about it. I can't find anything. All I have is pieces and snapshot of an old life, and it's not enough. And now I can't even find them. It's so hard to accept that my old life is gone. Yes, my old life is gone. I cannot bring it back, no matter how hard 
I try. And it was shortly after writing those words that, that God gave me a gift. That God engraved on my soul some powerful truths that helped save me, rescue me, and deliver me 22 years ago and do so today. See, church loss is inevitable. It's varied. It should be mourned, and it changes our lives forever. Which brings me to the final point in your notes. See, see the thing that God taught me, that God gave me, when you're going through loss, there's three things that if you do them, you'll get through to the other side. And the first is accept. Accept. Embrace the darkness. Uh, what I learned from a book, and, and I got three copies up here. Anyone going through loss, if you like a book, I got a copy right here. If you know someone, just grab this book, pass it out. I've given out. Uh, this guy wrote this book in 1996 and 1991 in a car crash. He, he was in the car driving. A drunk driver crossed the lane. He lost his mom. He lost his wife and his four-year-old daughter. And he wrote this book, published, by the way, in 1996. You know, when I went looking for a book, it, it was there for me. I passed out tons of these books. All right? But something he taught me in there is this concept of, like, you have your old life, and it's like the sun is setting, right? And, and you have a choice. I had a choice to make. I, I, I could chase a setting sun. Never going to catch it. Or I could embrace the darkness, embrace the full pain of my loss, and wait, and wait for the sun to rise. And that's the first step, right? Because it's gone, right? The sun is set on that. I realized that, right? I'd accept the fact that, guess what? Judy would never see John and Chelsea graduate. She would never see them, she would never see them get married, Right? The sun had set on that. And that's the first step, is accept that your loved one is gone, that the marriage is over, that the relationship is ended, that the physical health may not return, that the dream you had, it just might not happen. And this is hard. It's not fun. But what other choice do we have, right? We can either chase a setting sun or embrace the darkness. And here's what helps us. The next word is what enables us to be able to embrace that darkness trust. We trust. We trust in God. Uh, we trust in his goodness. We trust in his purpose. We trust in his strength. We trust in his care, in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, in his love for us. Uh, we trust that even though we may not like the plans God has for us, that those plans are not to harm us, but to prosper us and to give us a hope in the future. We trust that he's good, that he's with us, that he cares, that he will work this out for good if we allow him to. Amen? Amen. I got a bunch of scripture references for you. You accept, you trust. Accept's hard, you trust. God is trustworthy. He's faithful. Then you wait for the sun to rise. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. Psalm 33, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They're soaring wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will not walk and not be faint. You accept and you trust. And then you wait for the good that God is causing to be worked out 
become the light. And, and, and there's something else I learned. Okay, and this, this is important. You got to let God write the story. You got to let God have the outcome. Right? You, you can't tell God, this is what I want, and it's got to be this way, or else you're not faithful. I tell you what, you put God in a box like that, you're going to be disappointed. You got to trust him, God. You're going to do something, it's going to be good. I don't know what it is. It may not be what I expected or what I like, but I just trust you, God. Do not define the story for God. Amen? Amen. It, it, we want to. Trust me, I, I sent up scripts he sent back. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. In 1996, I accepted my loss. Didn't say I liked it, didn't say I wanted it. I said I accepted it. The fact that my life was changed forever. And I trusted that, that God would be working things out for good. And I waited for the sun to rise. And yeah, I get it. Waiting's not easy. Not fast. Not fun. But, but, but understand, the sun will rise. Understand, the loss you are experiencing, the pain you are feeling, when you accept and when you trust and when you wait, it's just the dark before the morning. It's just the dark before the sunrise. And, and listen, for me, a, a major part of my sunrise was a person. And, and in fact, when we first got together, you know what I called her? My sunrise. That's what she was. And, and that's what she's been. I, I didn't see it coming. She always told me she didn't vote for me when I came to the church in 1992. <laughs> didn't really like me, but like my kids. <laughs> But on January the 10th, 1997, we were married. The two became one. The one became five. And years later, the five became seven. Here's some pictures. What we looked like back then. <laughs> I, I told her, didn't show her, so I'm not, I can't be half trouble. You know, we didn't have professional photographers and stuff like that. She got that ring. There she is. That we're waiting before, there's, there's John, there's Leela, there's Chelsea, and there's all of us right there, and one final shot. Are you going through loss? Accept, trust, and wait. By the sky's grace. And listen, there is grace in loss. Because I'll tell you, in loss, God will draw closer and be more real than you could ever imagine. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted 
And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Talk about grace. God will be more real, more powerful, and he'll prove himself faithful. Where's the grace and loss? The grace is God doing a work in you, helping you become the person that he wants you to be. But where's the grace and loss? You'll realize that your ultimate and primary identity is as a child of God. And not the title you wear at work, not even the title you wear at home as a husband or a wife. Your ultimate identity, your unshakable ultimate identity is that you are a child of God. And you'll see God move and do things you never expected or imagined. Accept, trust, and wait. This one super quick story. We were in Georgia. John's about 13 at the time. And, and he's in the car with Laurie. And, and he's saying, you know what? Ms. Laurie, I, I, I was really angry at God when mom died. He says, but now I get it. Because if mom didn't die, dad wouldn't have married you. And we wouldn't be up here helping all these people in Georgia get to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and pray with me? Father God, thank you for this opportunity, God, to be in your house. And Lord, I just pray right now. Lord, there's no doubt there's someone in here that lost a dream, a job, a marriage, a relationship. Maybe a loved one has died, and it's hard, and it's difficult. And God, I pray you give them the strength to accept and to embrace the darkness, God, to, to trust in you, that, that you are good, God, that, that, you are, that you are faithful, that you are with them, that your promises are true. And God, give them the strength to wait, to wait on you, to wait on you to bring whatever sunrise you want to bring into their lives. God, thank you for being good. Thank you for being here. Thank you for enabling us to accept and trust and wait. Amen.